You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is Lou Paper. He's the author of In the Cauldron, Terror, Tension, and the American Ambassador's Struggle to Avoid Pearl Harbor. Folks, today you will learn some very interesting things about Pearl Harbor that you've never heard before. Lewis authored five other books, one about President John Kennedy, and one on Don Larson's perfect game in the 1956 World Series between the Yankees and Dodgers, and I remember that very well. His article and book reviews have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the American Scholar, and Lou received an outstanding review from Veterans Today. Lou, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, Pete. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you could join us. Lou, who is the American ambassador in this book? The American ambassador in this book is Joseph Grew. So in uh, the fall of 1941, Joseph Grew was 61 years old. Tall, lean, bushy eyebrows, full mustache. He had been an American diplomat for almost 40 years, and he had been America's ambassador to Japan in Tokyo for almost 10 years. All right. He spoke uh, pretty good Japanese, didn't he? Actually, he didn't speak Japanese, and he didn't speak Japanese. He was uh, a very fluent and uh, a linguist. He spoke French, and he spoke German fluently, but he did not speak Jap- uh, Japanese, and the reason is Japanese is one of the most difficult languages to learn in the world. And Ru decided when he went to Japan that even if he learned a few phrases and could talk a little bit, that he couldn't master the language. And he decided that it would be better not to do that because he was afraid of embarrassing himself by saying oh. a, a, an incorrect phrase. So he never learned to speak Japanese. They always used... Uh, somebody else. There were linguists in the embassy who did speak fluent Japanese, and he relied on them, Uh, although I have to say many of the Japanese uh, leaders with whom he uh, dealt, they spoke English, so that helped a little bit. Yeah. Well, in November of 1941, about a month before the attack on Pearl Harbor, only a few weeks before Pearl Harbor, Ambassador Groom sent a telegram to Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Tell us about that program. Or the telegram. Well, that, tele- that telegram, as you say, was a few weeks before Pearl Harbor. And in that telegram, Rue warned Secretary of State Cordell Hull that Japan was prepared to launch a suicidal war against the United States and that armed combat with dangerous and dramatic suddenness. And on November 30, 1941, now this is only a week before Pearl Harbor, Rue wrote in his diary, if war should come, I hope history will not overlook that telegram. Wow. What led Grew to send that telegram to Secretary of State Cordell Hall? Well, one factor that led Grew to send that telegram to Secretary of State Cordell Hall was the uh, Japanese economy. So the United States had uh, imposed economic sanctions on Japan 
in an effort to curb Japan's uh, military aggression in China and in Southeast Asia. And those economic sanctions had crippled the Japanese economy. Rice was being rationed. There was no gasoline for cars. The few cars that traversed Tokyo streets had to be fitted with a charcoal engine. Imported coffee was also unavailable. It had been replaced by another brew about which the New York Times correspondent said it was better not to ask too many questions. (laughs) That's interesting. Uh, Were there any other factors beyond the economy that caused the ambassador to send that telegram? Yes, there were. Uh, And one critical uh, factor was the Japanese mindset because Gru knew that a crippled economy would lead to a sense of desperation among the Japanese. And a sense of desperation would lead to war. It was all part of that samurai do-or-die spirit that still prevailed in Japan. Gru knew that for Japanese leaders, annihilation through a suicidal war with the United States was better than the humiliation of succumbing to American pressure. And there's a story which illustrates uh, that Japanese mindset. In the fall of 1941, Gru received word from the American embassy in China about a Japanese soldier who had been captured by Chinese troops in the fighting there. And the Japanese soldier came from a well-to-do family, and he wanted his family back in Japan to know that he was alive and well. So Gru passed the word on to the Japanese government, and he soon received a reply. The Japanese government said that neither it nor this man's family were interested. As far as they were concerned, that Japanese soldier was dead because, said the government, any Japanese soldier who had allowed himself to be captured had dishonored his family and dishonored his government. Wow. And, you know, I should probably just, you know, there's a little footnote here to that, you know, Japanese sure. mindset, uh, which uh, was seen in the Tokyo, the uh, Olympics that in Tokyo this past summer. There was a, uh, a Japanese wrestler, and he was in a match for the championship. And he, this Japanese wrestler lost the match, so he did not win the gold. He won the silver medal, meaning he was the second best wrestler in the world. And yet, after the match was over, he was seen crying. And when reporters asked him why he was crying after winning the silver medal in this wrestling match as the second-best wrestler in the world, he said he was so, so ashamed of himself because he had let down his country and he had let down his family. So that kind of mindset um, still prevails in Japan to some extent. To some extent. Uh, I think some of our athletes are about the same way. You want to know the truth about it, but... Right. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I guess their theory about the dishonorable surrender played a lot a big role in all the bonsai charges and suicidal attacks that occurred throughout the Pacific in World War II. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, these people, uh, even after the atomic bombs were dropped, uh, the Japanese leaders uh, did not, military leaders and civilian leaders did not want to surrender. They wanted to fight, uh, keep on fighting, even though uh, to continue fighting would ultimately lead to the annihilation of the Japanese uh, uh, country. And ultimately, it was uh, Hirohito, the emperor, 
who stepped in and said he was not prepared to see Japan completely destroyed uh, if the war continued because he saw the devastation that had been generated by the atomic bombs. And so he said, we've got to stop because otherwise it's going to be the end of Japan. Well, he was right. Um, I don't think people realize, uh, a lot of people don't, what the invasion of Japan would have cost us. They estimated at least one million casualties. And between the Japanese, right. uh, between uh, 10 and 20 million, and they had plans. Uh, we had uh, uh, atomic bombs uh, in route for the invasion, and uh, if we had to drop atomic bombs uh, ahead of our troops to try to protect them, they were going to do that, too. It would have been a, a horrible situation. Uh, no question. Why? Yeah. All right. What about the Japanese leader's ability to control the Japanese population and have them obey an order for a suicidal war against the United States. Was was uh, that a factor that contributed to Gru's decision to send that telegram to Secretary of State Cordell Hall in November of 41? Yes, it was. Uh, so let's take a step back. If I had written a book about Nazi Germany, I would not have to explain to you or your listeners about the brutality of the government. In November 19, December 1941, Japan was also a very repressive society. Secret police were everywhere. Surveillance was pervasive. No dissent was allowed. An indiscreet word uttered to a friend, a neighbor, a family member, and a person could find themselves arrested, thrown in jail, and subjected to horrific torture. Rue understood the upshot of all this. He knew that if Japanese leaders issued a command to launch a suicidal war against the United States, the Japanese people would obey that command, and as we just discussed, they would fight to the death. Well, wow, no dissent. That sounds sort of familiar today, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Okay. Now, in 1941, the United States and Japan were having discussions in Washington about a possible agreement to resolve the two countries' differences. Did those discussions factor into the telegram which Grew sent to Hull in November? Yes, they did. So, notwithstanding that samurai do-or-die spirit that I mentioned a moment ago, Japanese leaders understood the risk of war with the United States. And so they supported an initiative in the spring of 1941 to have discussions with Secretary of State Cordell Hull in Washington, D.C., to explore an agreement that would hopefully resolve the differences between the two countries. For his part, Secretary of State Cordell Hull knew there was virtually no chance of Japan and the United States entering into an agreement. Hull regard, regarded Japan as one of the worst international desperados in the history of mankind. He subscribed to the view that no words of the Japs on paper, he called them Japs, would be worth anything. So he didn't put any stock in any agreement that the Japanese would sign. But Hull could not tell that directly to the Japanese representatives who came to Washington to talk to him about that agreement. Why? Because in the spring of 1941, 
America's military capabilities were woefully inadequate. And so President Roosevelt and the military chiefs urged Hull to drag out the conversations with the Japanese as long as possible to give the United States time to bolster its military capabilities and to avoid a war in the Pacific for which the United States was not prepared. And so that's what Hull did. Uh, from the spring of 1941 into the summer and then the fall of 1941, he spent untold hours talking with the Japanese representatives about an agreement that he knew would never come to fruition. By the uh, November 1941, Rue had reported to Hull that Japanese leaders were very frustrated about the lack of progress in the discussions, that Japanese leaders were beginning to sense that the United States was not really interested in an agreement, and that the United States, as far as the Japanese leaders were, were concerned, they believed the United States was merely playing for time. But Gru knew that for Japan, time was running out because they were running out of resources because of the economic sanctions I mentioned a moment ago. And he knew they were at the brink of having to decide whether to just go along and succumb to American pressure or proceed to war, this uh, suicidal war that I mentioned a moment ago. Wow. All right, folks, we're going to have to go to our first break. Uh, Lou, please stand by. Great, great information. We'll be back in just a few seconds, folks. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with author Lou Paper. Lou, you know, you mentioned that the uh, Japanese sort of thought they were, they were getting into a suicidal war with the United States. I know their uh, 
Admiral Yamamoto, that was in charge of the Navy, he uh, came up with the idea of bombing Pearl Harbor, and Jinda and other people uh, planned it and plotted it and everything. But he told them, because uh, Yamamoto told the leaders there that uh, he'd been in America, he'd seen our industrial strength, he said that he could run havoc for about six months, and then they'd better be in a position to uh, sue for peace, because after that he could guarantee nothing. And the leaders in Japan said, well, after you attack Pearl Harbor, do you plan to attack uh, the, the west coast of, of the United States of America? He said, I have no plans whatsoever to attack the coastline of the United States of America. There will be a gun behind every blade of grass. <laughs> <laughs> right. He knew us very well. Okay. Now, during the well, you know, I, I do want to I do want to interject uh, one point about Yamamoto. So Yamamoto, as you correctly say, he was the one who planned, uh, came up with the idea of attacking Pearl Harbor, and he had to push for that idea over the course of several months in 1941. But because, like you say, he said the only way Japan could possibly win a war was by having taking some surprise uh, offensive at the very beginning, and hopefully gaining an advantage. But Yamamoto understood, as you say, the industrial might of uh, the United States. And although he planned the Pearl Harbor attack, as late as the fall, September of 1941, he was also telling Japanese leaders a war with so little chance of uh, victory should not be fought. But like I say, Japan felt they were being squeezed, and they were not going to succumb to American pressure. Yeah. Wow. All right, look, now, during this period, you know, the months before Pearl Harbor, did Ambassador Grew make any recommendations to President Roosevelt or Secretary of State Hull about things that they could do that might reduce the chance of war? He certainly did. He made many recommendations. And I I should uh, preface this by saying that Grew... And uh, President Roosevelt, they knew each other well. They had gone to school together. They had gone to prep school together, and they had gone to college at Harvard together. And so these were two guys who uh, knew each other very well. And so uh, the short short answer is Grew made uh, many recommendations. He wrote these Dear Frank letters to the president. And I won't uh, go over all the recommendations, but I'll mention two recommendations that he made. One recommendation was that uh, concerned a uh, suggestion or proposal that the Japanese prime minister made in August of 1941. And the Japanese prime minister uh, said that he was prepared to meet Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, on American soil, anywhere President Roosevelt wanted, to talk to him about the situation, to see if the two leaders could work out something to avoid uh, armed conflict. And so grew who knew the Japanese prime minister very well, he uh, urged uh, Roosevelt to accept that request and to talk to him because he thought the prime minister had the support of the emperor and he thought that there was reason to believe that the uh, prime minister would give Roosevelt something that would make it worthwhile to meet with him. So that was one recommendation he made. A second recommendation he made concerned uh, these discussions that we talked about a moment ago, that Hall was having with Japanese representatives in Washington about a possible agreement between Japan and the United States. 
Japan was very frustrated. Japanese leaders were very frustrated because they, they couldn't figure out what the United States wanted in the agreement. And so they kept coming to GRU and saying, what is it that the United States wants in this agreement? And so another recommendation, which GRU uh, passed on to Roosevelt and to Secretary of State Cordell Hall, was to give uh, the Japanese uh, leaders uh, some language or some indication of precisely what it was they wanted in this, degree, this agreement that they had been talking about for months. So that was the second important recommendation which grew made to Roosevelt and to Secretary of State uh, Cordell Hall. Okay, were any of uh, Ambassador Grew's recommendations accepted? No, none of them was accepted. In fact, most of the recommendations that he made were not even acknowledged. And so uh, the two recommendations uh, that I made, that mentioned just a moment ago, uh, they weren't accepted. The United States didn't provide any detail on the language it wanted in an agreement until, you know, very late, till November of 1941. And although Roosevelt was personally inclined to meet with the Japanese prime minister because he had great confidence in his personal charm and in his ability to deal with people. So Roosevelt initially was inclined to meet with the Japanese prime minister, but Paul uh, convinced Roosevelt that that would be a bad idea and they should first have an agreement before he met with them. And one of the reasons uh, Hall uh, felt that way, he, he, Munich was in the background, uh, this uh, 1938 agreement between the British and uh, Hitler over the fate of Czechoslovakia. And that was where Neville Chamberlain came back and saying, we have peace in our time. And of course, Hitler didn't abide by that agreement. And so Hall was concerned that uh, a meeting between Roosevelt and the Japanese prime minister would be a, a, like having a second Munich. And so he persuaded Roosevelt not to meet with uh, the Japanese prime minister. Hmm. How did uh, Ambassador Green feel about being ignored? He was very bitter about it, very frustrated, very bitter, um, because he felt he had uh, knowledge that he was passing on that he thought could be useful, and uh, there's a chance that perhaps war could be uh, avoided. And later... He would write that uh, American policy in those months before Pearl Harbor was completely inflexible from his perspective, and that his reporting to the government from Tokyo was like throwing pebbles into a lake at night. So he was, uh, as I say, very frustrated and very bitter uh, about that. Uh, you mentioned... America wasn't very flexible at the time. I think we were basically concerned about Germany and what they were doing. I mean, they were already uh, torpedoing some of our ships in the Atlantic. Um, do you think if America had been any more flexible with the Japanese, that war could have been prevented? Well, uh, let me answer it this way. To, first of all, uh, you're quite right. Roosevelt uh, himself, he was personally much more concerned about Germany and Hitler than he was about Japan. And so most of his energies in uh, foreign affairs were focused on what America could do to help Great Britain and what America could do to shore up and, and become involved to prevent uh, Nazi expansion and aggression. So uh, in response to your question, 
I would answer it this way. Gru felt, Gru believed that there was a chance that war could have been avoided. He didn't know, and he said, look, I, I can't tell you what uh, the future would have been if we had done something different. Maybe it would have worked. Maybe it would not have worked. But he said there was a reasonable chance, and the reason he believed that was because, as I mentioned, in, uh, when the Japanese prime minister uh, offered to meet with Roosevelt in uh, the summer of 1941, in August uh, 1941, and they, they, they pushed that very aggressively, that idea of a meeting between the prime minister and President Roosevelt, the emperor was very uh, eager to avoid war with the United States, and he urged the, the prime minister to do whatever he could to uh, work out something with the United States. And the prime minister told Drew that if they could, one of the things they would do that they thought would please the United States is they would terminate their uh, military aggression in China. That was a, a key issue for the United States. And so they were... Uh, Drew was told that the Japanese were prepared to cease hostilities in, uh, in uh, China. So for all those reasons, Gru believed there was a chance that war could have been avoided. Well, wow. All right. December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. That's Hawaii time, of course. How did Ambassador Gru learn about the attack? Well, that's a good question, and I think uh, the answer to that question illustrates how little regard decision-makers in Washington, and especially uh, Cordell, Hull, uh, Cordell Hull, Secretary of State Cordell Hull, how really little regard they had for Gru. So here's this uh, ambassador, ambassador, and he's struggling to figure out some way to avoid war because that's what he thinks his mission. He's a diplomat, so he thinks his mission as a diplomat is to find some way to avoid armed conflict. And he's going through all these telegrams and these suggestions and recommendations and trying to do what he can and giving his advice freely. So uh, uh, the Pearl Harbor attack occurs around 7.30, quarter to 8 uh, Hawaii time, which is close to about uh, it's 1 o'clock or so in Washington time. When that happens, it's about 3 o'clock in the morning in Japan, because Japan was 14 and a half hours ahead of uh, United of Washington time. Sure. So when the Pearl Harbor attack occurred, Wu was asleep with his wife in the, the uh, American embassy in Tokyo. So around 7 o'clock in the morning, so now it's four hours later, so now we're talking about uh, it's now almost 5 o'clock in Washington, and of course everybody knows about the Pearl, the Pearl Harbor attack. Gru gets a call from the uh, foreign ministry in Japan, says the foreign minister, the Japanese foreign minister, wants to meet with him because Roosevelt had sent a telegram to the emperor uh, the previous evening, and the foreign minister, the Japanese foreign minister, wanted to give Gru the emperor's response to President Roosevelt's uh, message. So Gru goes over to the foreign ministry, meets with the foreign minister, the foreign minister gives uh, Gru the emperor's response. Uh, Roosevelt had asked uh, the emperor to withdraw all his troops from Indochina, all the Japanese troops. And so the emperor uh, said thanks, but no thanks. He wasn't going to withdraw troops uh, anywhere without an agreement, and they had no agreement. So Gru takes this message uh, back uh, from the foreign ministry. He drives back or is driven back to the American embassy now, it's about 8 o'clock in the morning. Now it's almost 6 o'clock 
in Washington around there. It's around 6 o'clock in Washington. So it's hours after Washington has learned about uh, Pearl Harbor. No one in Washington bothered to advise Gru that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. So he's uh, in the embassy and has no notion that Pearl Harbor has been attacked. He had scheduled, there was a scheduled, there was a golf tournament that was scheduled for December, Monday, December 8th in Tokyo. And so he comes back to the embassy and he starts getting dressed because he's going to go play in this golf tournament. Because he doesn't have any, he has no, he has no notion that, yeah, let the yeah, so then, that up. yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'll just tell you, I'll finish it up really quickly. I was okay. He gets a call from his naval attache saying he heard over the radio from San Francisco that Pearl Harbor attack, and that's how Gru learned about it from a, a report mm. on a uh, San Francisco radio station. Unbelievable. That That's incredible. All right, we're going to our second break, Lou. Folks, uh, stay with us. we got some uh, very interesting comments coming up. Uh, we'll be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Hello, Atlanta. Have you heard? Get your motor running, whether you're born to be wild or not. Because on October the 2nd from 10 till 2 at Roswell City Hall, we're hosting a car show unlike anything Roswell has seen, benefiting St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and free to the public. Guests will enjoy an array of exquisite, rarely seen cars, boats, bikes, plus vendors with both automotive and art themes, along with local brewery from the earth hosting a beer garden, offering a lunch menu, coffee barista, snow cones, photo booth, and face painting. Fun for all the family. Register your motor anytime up to the day of the event at atlmotoringfest.org. And for more information, call us, 770-645-6844. We look forward to seeing you Saturday, October the 2nd, in the perfect isolated space around Roswell City Hall. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with author Lou Paper. Uh, Lou, I, we were talking about Ambassador Drew. He's in Japan. He's getting ready to go play golf. And this is hours after Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And he finds out then that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. That, that's that's incredible. Uh, that's, well, right, he, look, I want you can imagine... Go ahead. Yeah, you can imagine how he felt. I mean, here he is. He's going to go, getting dressed to go play golf, and he finds out that hours earlier Pearl Harbor had been attacked, and nobody in Washington had bothered to tell him that. That's that's incredible. All right, I want to take a step back. Didn't Ambassador Grew send Secretary of State Cordell Hull another uh, telegram much earlier in 1941 that mentioned a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor? Yes, that's correct. 
On January 27, 1941, so this is uh, 10 months or so before uh, Pearl Harbor occurred, Bruce sent a telegram to Secretary of State Cordell Hull to tell him that he had heard that in the event of a conflict that the Japanese were going to attack, uh, have a surprise attack on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. Uh, Gru had learned that uh, from the Peruvian uh, minister the, who is uh, to Japan, who is also in Tokyo. And the Peruvian minister to Japan was a friend of Gru's. The, the diplomatic community there was small. And the Peruvian minister had heard through a variety, through his staff and a variety of other sources that about this plan that the Japanese Navy had to attack Pearl Harbor. And so he came over and he met with Gru and he gave him this information and he said, I know this sounds incredible, but, and he told him, he said, they're, they're planning to attack Pearl Harbor. So Gru's a diplomat. He feels he, uh, he has to report everything back to the United States, so he sends his telegram to, uh, to Secretary of State Cordell Hull, as I say, on January 27, 1941, reporting about the possible attack on Pearl Harbor. Well, what was Washington's reaction to that uh, telegram? Not much. Uh, so they got the telegram, they looked at it, and they, they couldn't believe it. And uh, you have to remember that one of the reasons why uh, the United States didn't put any credence in that or any of the recommendations uh, or concerns that uh, Gru had expressed is because in the United States, and especially in Washington, uh, people could not believe that Japan would attack the United States. The United States was so much larger in terms of population and resources People thought it would be utterly stupid for Japan to attack the United States. And so when they got this telegram, people looked at it and said, uh, the, you know, Gru's been in Japan too long. Uh, there, there's no way Japan's going to attack the United States. And so they just uh, dismissed the telegram. And in fact, Gru never received any response from Hull or anybody else in Washington about the telegram. They just pushed it aside and gave it no credence uh, whatsoever. Huh. That would be like the Pentagon Awards in D.C. receiving a memo from the field from FBI agents that uh, uh, men of Arab descent were learning how to fly airplanes but not take off right. planes. <laughs> right, and they would say, oh, oh, right. come on. they say, get serious. Yeah. All right, now, after Pearl Harbor, it's December 8, 1941 in Tokyo, one day after the attack. The United States and Japan are in a state of war. What happened to Ambassador Gru and the other members of our embassy? Well, as soon as Pearl Harbor occurred, uh, the police came over and they arrested Gru and the other members of the American embassy. And they took them as prisoners of war. And wow. all of them were placed in the American embassy, and they were held there uh, for about six months while the United States and Japan uh, worked out a diplomatic exchange agreement so that American diplomats in Japan could return to the United States and Japanese diplomats in the United States could return to Japan. Huh. Do, do you know if the United States arrested the uh, Japanese ambassadors that were over here trying to negotiate 
a plan? Well, they, 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 did, they did collect them, they, but, but they did uh, pull them together. I don't think they called them prisoners of war, but they did uh, gather all the Japanese diplomats. Uh, but they were placed in a much more hospitable uh, surroundings than the American diplomats. They were placed in uh, a luxury hotels where they had all the comforts of a luxury hotel. The, Jap- the American embassy was a very nice uh, facility, but it was not designed to house uh, the 65 members of the American embassy staff and their families. So they were really cramped. And often, in, in the case of the American diplomats, offices were turned into bedrooms. They had cots and mattresses lying about to accommodate these people whereas the Japanese diplomats were given uh, much better treatment by the United States. Wow. All right, well, if they were there as prisoners of war for six months, that means that Ambassador Groom and his uh, uh, embassy staff, they were there when Jimmy Doolittle's uh, raid happened, when they bombed Tokyo. Uh, did Groom well, they have were there. response to that? Well, no, I think I think Doolittle's uh, raid uh, came earlier, uh, but they were they were there. Well, no, they were not there. Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't think they were there when Doolittle uh, did his uh, attack. I think they by that okay. time they had they had they had gone. They had come back. Okay, all right. But you know, now, while go ahead. I was just going to ask you how Ambassador Groove felt about being taken as a prisoner of war. Was he bitter about that? Yeah, he was very bitter and frustrated because uh, he believed that, as I mentioned a moment ago, that if uh, his recommendations had been accepted, there was a chance that war could have been avoided. So he was very bitter about that. And so while during that six months that he was held as a prisoner of war in Tokyo, Gru wrote a uh, 60-page uh, report which detailed... Uh, his criticism uh, of American policy in those months before uh, Pearl Harbor. And Grew planned to write, give the 60-page report that was critical of American policy in those months before Pearl Harbor. Uh, he uh, planned to give that report uh, to uh, Secretary of State Cordell Hall and President Roosevelt when he returned uh, to the United States. Uh, but that never happened. Um, uh, what happened was Gru returned to the United States with this uh, report uh, in, on August 25, 1942. And he arrived by ship, which uh, came into New York Harbor. And as soon as uh, Gru arrived into New York Harbor, this was in August, uh, as I say, 1942, he and his private secretary, who is a recent Yale graduate, they immediately took a train down to Washington, D.C. And on the morning of August 26, 1942, Grew and his private secretary went to Secretary of State Cordell's Hall, Hall's offices in the old executive office building, which was right across the street from uh, the White House. And so uh, Grew went into uh, uh, Hall's private office by himself, and his private secretary wait, uh, waited in the outer offices. And Grew's private secretary couldn't hear the conversation uh, between Hall and Grew, but he could hear Secretary of State Cordell Hall yelling at Grew. And then after about 30 minutes, Grew emerged from Hall's private office, and he clearly looked shaken. 
And so Gru suggested to his private secretary that they adjourn to a lunch at the nearby Metropolitan Club. And at the lunch, Gru told his private secretary what had happened. Gru handed Hull the 60-page report that he'd uh, written while he was a prisoner of war in Tokyo. Secretary of State Cordell Hull glanced at the report. He saw that it criticized decisions and statements which Hull had made in those months before Pearl Harbor. Hull immediately demanded that Gru destroy the report. Gru protested that he did not want to destroy the document, that it was his confidential report to his superiors. But Hull remained adamant, and he told Gru to go home, think about it, come back the next morning, and tell him whether or not he would destroy that report. So as a practical matter, Gru felt he had no choice but to yield to Hull's demand because Gru was a subordinate official in the State Department. And so he felt, believed that he had to obey a, an order from his superior. So the following morning, Gru went uh, back to Hull's office and he told the Secretary of State that he would uh, destroy that report. So I, I should add that there's no evidence that President Roosevelt knew about the report or its destruction. And uh, for his report, uh, for his part, Gru never publicly acknowledged the destruction of the report, not even when he was asked in a post-war congressional hearing whether he had prepared any report to give to Hull upon his return to the United States. And do we know what happened to that report? Has it ever been published? Oh, no, no. I mean, Gru did this destroy that report. It was destroyed. But the, the interesting thing is, I know about uh, the contents of the report uh, from two sources. First of all, Gru's private secretary had read the report. And so he wrote, uh, later wrote uh, a, a, a memoir, of, or a, a little note about what he remembered the report Saying. So I had uh, the private secretary's uh, comments. And more importantly, when Gru was on the ship coming back to the United States from Japan, he wrote a 15-page letter to uh, President Roosevelt, another Dear Frank letter. And this letter was going to be the cover letter that Gru is going to use to give Roosevelt the, uh, this report. And so that 14- or 15-page letter talks about what is in the report. And I do have a draft. I did uh, obtain a copy uh, uh, of that draft letter that Gru wrote to President Roosevelt. And one of the things uh, Gru said in his letter to Roosevelt was, I think you should read this report because he said, I think future historians will look at this report to uh, argue or discuss whether or not war with Japan could have been avoided. So I did have access to that letter, so that was helpful. That, that's unbelievable. Alright, we are uh, just about ready for our last break here, folks. We'll be back in just a minute or two. Uh, Lou, stay with us, man. This is great information I've never heard before. 
Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand, joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Lou Paper. Lou, um, our Japanese ambassador, Drew, is back at the United States after the Pearl Harbor is bombed. What did he do uh, after he returned to the United States? Well, it's very interesting. So he remained in the State Department uh, after he came back uh, in Washington, D.C. In uh, November 1944, Cordell Hall resigned as Secretary of State, and so President Roosevelt appointed a new Secretary of State in 1944, and when he did that, he appointed Gru the Undersecretary of State. So Gru now now is the number two person in the State Department, and as the number two, uh, and there's a certain irony here, and, and here's the irony. So the number two, as a number two person in the State Department, Gru became the acting Secretary of State, whenever the Secretary of State was outside of Washington. And that was often the case because the Secretary of State was often outside of Washington attending conferences or whatever. And so uh, here's uh, the irony. In August 1945, uh, Joseph Grew, this diplomat who had worked so hard to avoid war with Japan, was the acting Secretary of State when the United States dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. How did you come to write this book about Ambassador Grew and Pearl Harbor? Well, that's an interesting question. So um, about uh, eight years ago, I was thinking of writing a book about America in 1941. Uh, It was a pivotal year for the country. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt had been inaugurated for an unprecedented third term as president. The UAW signed its first contract for the car manufacturer. The New York Yankees, Joe DiMaggio, had safely in 56 consecutive games, a record (laughs) which still stands. And of course, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. So in the course of my research for that book, I came across the name of Joseph Grew and his effort to orchestrate an agreement between Japan and the United States to avoid the war he saw coming. 
And I was intrigued. And the more I researched, the more I realized that Joe Gru's story had never been told. And so I switched gears to tell that story. Yeah, I've, I've read some stuff on Gru. He was a good man. Look, in writing this book, how much importance did you attach to your descriptions of the people involved? I, I gave that a lot of importance because I wanted uh, this book to sing, and I wanted to bring uh, the characters to life uh, for the reader. Uh, take President Roosevelt. He's a central figure in this drama. We've all seen those films of uh, President Roosevelt standing in the well of the United States House of Representatives on December 8, 1941, saying that December 7, 1941, is a date that will live in infamy. And when you see those films of President Roosevelt, as I say, standing in the House of Representatives on December 8, 1941, he looks uh, so strong, he sounds so vibrant. And yet, here's a man who had been stricken by polio and could not walk. And so, when I came to writing the book, I was thinking about it. I said, you and I, and everybody who's listening, uh, just about, I presume, to this, uh, you know, we get up in the morning, we go to the bathroom, we do our business, we come back, and we get dressed, and we go about our day. Roosevelt could not do those with things without assistance because, as I say, he had been stricken by polio and he could not walk. So he needed assistance to do all those things that we take for granted. And that assistance was not provided by his wife, Eleanor. She had her own bedroom down the hall in the White House. And more than that, she was almost always traveling. Instead, Roosevelt relied on a valet. And Roosevelt had two valets during his 12 years in the White House. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could find some commentary from those valets about what Roosevelt was really like in those private moments with his valet? And I was able to find that commentary. And I learned that in those private moments with his valet, Roosevelt almost always displayed a sweet, amiable disposition. And Roosevelt's valet in December 1941 was Arthur Prettyman, a big black man who was a chief petty officer in the United States Navy. Wow. And Prettyman was also a very good-looking guy. And although Prettyman was married, Roosevelt liked to tease him about being a lady killer. And every time Roosevelt would tease Prettyman about being a lady killer, Prettyman would respond, one does not refute the chief executive, Mr. President. <laughs> did, did you um, try to provide the same intimacy in describing Ambassador Grew as you did uh, Roosevelt? Absolutely. And so one of the ways I tried to do that was I talked to many members of his family, his grandchildren, his cousins, his great-grandchildren, and uh, they told me many stories about Gru. Uh, many of them were very interesting. Uh, but one story uh, that I want to relate here that, that stood out was particularly important to me because it displayed Gru's stature and his diplomatic skills. And it was January 1949. Gru was asked to provide some remarks 
at a dinner being held in honor of General George C. Marshall, who was retiring as Secretary of State. General Marshall had been Chief of the Army during World War II, and after the war, Truman had appointed him as Secretary of State. And now, in January 1949, General Marshall was going to retire to his farm in Virginia with his wife. At the dinner was General Dwight D. Eisenhower and his wife, Mamie. In his closing remarks, in honor of General Marshall, Bruce said all he wants to do is retire to his farm in Virginia with Mrs. Eisenhower. Well, <laughs> as soon as Bruce, well, as soon as Bruce said that, everybody began to laugh, and Bruce immediately recognized his mistake, and quickly and coolly said, "My apologies to the general." And at that point, General Eisenhower blurted out, "Which general?" <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you mentioned uh, conversations with Gru's family. Uh, what about documents? Uh, how important were they in providing your uh, portrayals of Ambassador Gru? Documents were very important, and I had access to a lot of uh, memoirs and uh, other documents that were critical in my ability to write this book. But no document was more important than Gru's diary. This guy was incredibly disciplined. Almost every evening and on the weekends during his long diplomatic career, uh, he would sit at his desk, his uh, pipe clenched between his teeth, his Smith Corona typewriter in front of him, and he would type out what had happened, what had been said, what he thought in the previous day. I had access to thousands of pages of Bruce's diary. I knew almost everything he did, everything he said, and everything he thought in those months before Pearl Harbor. I knew what time he got up in the morning. I knew that his favorite Scotch whiskey was Johnny Walker Red. And I knew, too, about his very deep feelings for his wife, uh, Alice. Oh, you mentioned his feelings toward Alice. What was she like? Well, so Alice uh, was, when when Gru married uh, Alice Perry... In 1905, she was a tall, vivacious, beautiful woman with long, uh, dark hair. And Alice came uh, from a a prominent family uh, in Boston, but she had little formal education, in part because uh, her family was almost always traveling. But Alice was very smart. Alice had a lot of opinions, and Alice wanted to convey those opinions to her husband. And he was willing to listen. Ruth told his daughters that he rarely made an important decision or sent out an important communication without consulting Alice. But Alice was uh, a formidable force in her own right. And I'll tell, I know we don't have much time, I'll tell this uh, quick story about Alice, which is instructive. And it was conveyed by Ruth's private secretary. And it concerned a social evening at the American Embassy in Tokyo shortly before Pearl Harbor. And the Grews had invited over for dinner Sir Robert Craigie, the British ambassador to Japan, and his wife, Lady Craigie. The Grews liked Sir Robert Craigie. The Grews did not like Lady Craigie. They thought she was a nasty woman. In any event, at the social occasions at the American Embassy uh, in Tokyo, the Grews would often show a movie after dinner. 
The problem was the projector they used to show the movie was almost always breaking down. And so on this particular occasion, uh, shortly before Pearl Harbor, as the Grews and Craigies were watching a movie after dinner, the projector again broke down. When it did, Lady Craigie turned to Alice and said, Isn't it unfortunate, my dear, that that machine of yours is always breaking down? Without skipping a beat, Alice turned to Lady Craigie and said, Yes, but isn't it great that we have no important guests tonight? That is great. That's great. Hey, looking back on your research and writing of this book, what was your ultimate goal? My ultimate goal was to uh, give people a new perspective on Pearl Harbor. So, as I mentioned before, most of us, if not all of us, have seen uh, those films of President Roosevelt standing in uh, the well of the United States House of Representatives on December 8, 1941, saying that December 7, 1941 is a date that will live in infamy because of Japan's surprise attack on the U.S. naval base in Pearl Harbor. There's no evidence that Roosevelt or his cabinet knew in advance specifically that Japan would attack Pearl Harbor, aside from that telegram we mentioned uh, a moment ago that Grew had sent. But um, they really should not have been uh, surprised uh, that uh, Japan would directly attack the United States for all the reasons that I've mentioned uh, in this previous hour. And so I wanted people to have uh, a better understanding of what happened here, because I think too many uh, of us, we listened to, we see the film of that speech, and we thought that this attack at Pearl Harbor came out of the blue, and there was no understanding or reasons why uh, we could have expected it. And I think there was a lot of factors going on which should have alerted uh, the United States to the fact that Japan was prepared to do something drastic. And in fact, I think in some sense, Roosevelt uh, didn't know that Japan was going to do something. And so it wasn't as though this came out completely out of the blue uh, and was... uh, it should not have been a complete surprise that Japan would do something so drastic. And I think yeah, if, uh, you read the, if you read uh, the book, uh, I mean, I think... Lou, we got to finish one. Yeah, we got to go. We're out of time, but uh, a cover-up conspiracy, yes or no? I'm sorry, say that again? A cover-up conspiracy about Pearl Harbor, yes or no? No. No, I don't think there's any conspiracy to cover it up. All right. Great information, Lou. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, I'll certainly learned a lot. Uh, folks, be with us next week for another veteran story. Thank you, Lou. Thanks, Pete. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.